I want you to imagine yourself um, in a really, really hot climate, um, at a desert area, and suddenly a man comes from nowhere, a man who has had some reputation, who's been well spoken of, and who's well thought of. We're in Galilee. A report about this man has gone around of all the country. Um, he was teaching in all their synagogues, and he came to a synagogue in Nazareth, and he picked up the scroll, and he read, and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, I don't know how you'd react. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it, and he just went and sat down. And all the eyes in the building followed him. And from there, he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, I don't know how you'd react to that. I don't know what you'd think. I don't know how you'd have responded to this madman, I don't know, claiming that he was going to do this. But we'll come back to that in a moment. I want you just to reflect for a few moments. Some of this is going to be quite reflective. But what motivates you as a... What got you up this morning? It's probably the, probably the alarm clock, but... What actually got you up? What gets you excited? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Let's think of it another way. What about our society? What excites us as a society? What drives us as the Western world? What forces determine what we want to do with our lives? Where's our ambition in life? I come from a very working class background. My father was very ambitious for me. I was a great disappointment to him, I think, when after being the first person in my family to go to university, getting a first class honours degree, I gave it all up because I wanted to go overseas. He wasn't a believer himself. He found it really, really hard. Ambition. Ambition. The scripture talks a little bit about ambition. I put a reading on the screen. Who's wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For, what you, uh, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Or from Philippians. So both 
James and Paul say similar things. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I think ambition is a good thing often, but often it can be a selfish thing, a not good thing. And I think often, as Christians, we can get driven by things which are not good. As a society, we can get driven by things which are not good. We can have aspirations which are not good, a desire for position, a desire for comfort, a desire for wealth, a desire for recognition, a desire for affluence, whatever it is. We can build all our own terms. Maybe you need to reflect. Maybe I need to reflect. What about us? What motivates us? Where's our ambition in life? Where do we put all of our energies? Oh, thought it was going on. Paul himself was incredibly ambitious. And he says this in Romans. And from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I fully proclaim the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition, there it is, to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So that I wouldn't be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it's written, those who are not told about him will see. Those who have not heard will understand. What an incredible ambition that Paul had. I believe that God wants the church as a whole to have that sort of ambition. I hope it's been helpful for you to reflect a bit about yourselves. This is not an impersonal talk. This is about me and what I think of my life, what I do with my life. And here we have Jesus coming up and making what I consider, I suppose, is his mission statement about what he is all about there in Nazareth. Well, mission has become a word that we used to use as a church word, but now the whole of society uses it, doesn't it? Uh, mission statements are a common parlance. Uh, be it uh, this one, a computer on every desk and in every home, and of course, all running Microsoft software. Well, I'm afraid Apple had something to do with it, and some of us managed to move away from that. But that was, it. That was his mission statement in life, what he lived for, an incredible company that was built. Maybe you see on the side of vans, don't we, committed to your to providing your logistic solutions. Uh, some of the rubbish we write on things these days as mission statements. I don't think many mission statements from businesses would have committed to maximizing shareholder returns or committed to paying huge bonuses, although for some businesses that seems to be what it's all about. But Jesus actually sets us an incredible example here with his mission statement. The greatest mission statement that's ever been written. Well, written for him in Isaiah, of course. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of a sight to the blind, let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I hope... That warms your hearts, 
I hope that gets you excited. I hope that makes you think, wow, what a mission. What good news we have. And in one sense, Jesus wasn't saying anything new. Sometimes I think we get a very skewed view of the Scripture. Actually, this is just the bedrock of our faith. The whole of the mega-narrative of the Bible, the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the New Testament, it is actually a progressive revelation of God's desire to redeem the whole world. Let's just go back to maybe one of the earlier verses. And one of the earlier people, the man Abraham, called the father, Father Abraham. One of the first people that God gave a mission to in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. And it refers to his calling. He was called, wasn't he, to leave his comfort zone. Chosen for a specific mission. Called, maybe initial focus of his own family. But actually, right at the beginning there, in Genesis 12, verse 3, it says this. His ultimate mission was... What was his ultimate mission? Be a blessing to, to the whole nation, to the whole world. There, right at the beginning of Genesis, we have it. Let's look at Israel as a nation. hope it moves on. Just picking a psalm, Psalm 96. You could pick any psalm, probably. Picking out. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in truth. God wanted throughout the whole of the Old Testament, not just for the tribe of Israel to know about the Lord, but for the whole world to know about the Lord and for him to reign over all the earth. But sadly, Israel got it wrong. Their sin wasn't their idolatry. It was that. It wasn't their messing up sexually. It wasn't that. It wasn't the way they treated people. It was that. But actually, they became a private members club. They became for the Jews only. They were only a special nation for one purpose. To bless the other nations of the world. Just read Deuteronomy verses, chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. It's all about that. They were not special in themselves. As it says in Exodus, they were called to be the priests to the nation. And it began to think of itself as just a special people and that no one else was special, that they were the center of God's pan. And I think maybe they, got, they just got a picture of that. There's a wonderful little verse in 2 Kings Chapter 7, verse 9. And it says this. They said to themselves, what we are doing is not right. Well, what were they not doing that wasn't right? This is a day of good news, and we have kept it to ourselves. 
That was, in one sense, Israel's problem. And maybe, sometimes too, often maybe, it can be our problem as a church. So what we know is the Great Commission, it's always the text used, isn't it? Emotion mission events. This was an, an, an add-on that Jesus put at the, in, in the last words that he said, that was just added on at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. This is actually the mega-narrative of the whole Scripture. I often say to my wife, something like, go and make a cup of tea, love. Or she might probably say it to me, actually, a bit more than I say it to her. What's the important part of that sentence, other than love? That's the important word, otherwise, no chance. Make a cup of tea. It's not the going. It's the making the cup of tea. Go and make the bed. Go and put on the washing machine. Go and dig the garden. Go and make disciples. This is for us all, and it's not new. It's a call to the whole church not to be like Israel and keep the good news to itself. Well, there is good news. Because over the last, well, I think the whole two millennium, pockets of people have not kept the good news to ourselves. There's some fantastic news, and contrary to what we read in our media, the church globally is not in crisis. It's growing, it's vibrant, it's alive. The change is that Christianity, once maybe a European religion or became a European religion, it's gone global. Over the past century, two centuries, Hundreds and thousands of millions of people across all nations. They've left home. They've left family, brought the good news, and so many people have come to faith. The center of gravity has moved from us here in the West, from London, from Belfast, from New York to Nairobi, to Lagos, even increasingly to Tehran. Let's take Africa. Estimated probably 1910, there were about 5 million Christians other than Ethiopia in Africa. Now, well, maybe 45% of that nation at least owns the name Christian in some way. What a transformation. What a change in 100 years. That is amazing. What about China? More followers of Christ today than our members of the Communist Party. How's our response to that? What do we say? Does your heart go, wow, the change, even in my lifetime, is enormous? And some of them are quite recent. The Dalit, the untouchables of India. OM does some fantastic work. Many other organizations do some fantastic work among the Dalits. Who knows? 
but maybe 14 million or so of the 40 million Dalit now walking in faith. Unbelievable. Incredible. Doesn't it warm your hearts? And despite all the news about Islam, maybe more people have come to faith in the Islamic world in the last 25 years, in the whole of the last 1,400 years. If you've not read the little book, A Wind in the House of Islam, it really is encouraging. It's an incredible story of how little pockets all over the place have come to faith. And that is what it is all about. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Make disciples. Why? That all the nations of the world might be blessed. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb and saying... Come on, you can do better than that. Let's pretend we're in Africa, shall we? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb. Come on, we can all say that, can't we? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Incredible. We have so much to rejoice about that so many people across our globe have come to faith. I'm going to take a detour. I thought I would. Um, I think I've got time, Gordon. Yeah, hope so. Um, we're going to try a little bit of a quiz, I hope. Good. So, how much of the world, very approximately, I'm a math teacher, or I was, so I believe in approximation. Uh, I've never had the chance to hear the gospel. A tenth, a fifth, or a third. Any guess? Hands up for a tenth. Hands up for a, th- a fifth. Hands up for a third. Yeah, majority have it. It's probably about a third. Over two million people, maybe two and a half million people, have never ever heard anything about Jesus, have never had the chance to hear the gospel, have never even met someone who's a Christian. Can you imagine that? Did I say two million? I should have said two billion. What percentage of evangelism is aimed at non-Christians? Those who aren't in faith. 80%, 65%, 15%. Who's up for 85 Who's up for 65? You're good at this. Who's up for 15? Most of our evangelism, most of our mission is aimed at people who've already had a chance. 80%, 5% of all our effort is actually aimed at people who've heard in some way already. What percentage of missionaries go to originally Christianized people groups? 50, 90, 75. Who's 50? Who's 90? 
Who's 75? Beat you on that one. It's 90. Can we believe that? It's just incredible. How many people in our world whoops, have no scripture in their own language? Five million, 50 million, 100 million. You should be getting the idea of these. There was a clue in that all of them have been the highest so far. So you're right. Still so many people have no scripture at all. And many, many more don't have the whole Bible. Hopefully the next one. Here we are. Iran, though. 1979 and the revolution. Here today, 40 years on. How many people in a country that was almost exclusively Muslim do you think now might be following Jesus from an Iranian background? God, we're quiet, aren't we? You're very, very English. I thought this was Northern Ireland. Well, actually, no one really knows. 100,000 is the most conservative effort estimate I've heard, up to a million. Um, I was just sharing beforehand, uh, my wife teaches English to speakers of other languages, and uh, we, uh, one of her uh, students, a, a man called Mohammed, he came uh, to our home, and he often brought his friend who he was living with, uh, with him, and they have to have for a meal, and we do a little Bible study with him, Sahel used to sit on the side. Um, probably five years, he went to, to other studies. Um, uh, Mohammed, he never came to faith. We suddenly got a phone call from Sahel. Would you come and be my sponsor? I'm getting baptized. God's come into my life. Oh, he's come into my sister's life as well. Oh, and he's come into my mother's life. Oh, my cousin's just come to faith. Suddenly, this quiet little man on the side completely changed because of Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations. And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every mission, sorry, nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb and saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. So let's go back to um, intermission over. We're called today to be a missional community, not keeping good things to ourselves. Reaching out locally, nationally, globally. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the church is the only body that exists for the benefit of its non-members. He wasn't right. Just think of the lifeboats. People are part of that movement. Unpaid volunteers. Well, they're there not to keep their lifeboats running, but actually to help those lost at sea or with real problems. They exist for their non-members. But actually what he said was 100% right. 
because it was true in its essence. We have no existence as a church if we're just a private members club. It's great to meet together. It's great to have fellowship together. It's great to spend times together. It's great to do studies with each other. It's great to catch up with each other. It's great to have fantastic hospitality and be inviting people to our homes all the time, to worship together, to pray together. They're all so important. A church without them doesn't exist. We are a real community. And yet sometimes we can just be adept, can't we? at that only being for ourselves. We cannot be a club that just exists for ourselves. We need to be for our non-members. One of my heroes is a Latin American theologian called Rene Padilla. He said this, Commitment to mission is the very essence of being the church A church that is not witnessing to Christ Jesus and thus to crossing the frontier between faith and no faith is no longer the church. It's a religious club, a group of friends, or a social welfare agency. Abraham's mission was to bless all nations. Israel's mission was to bless all nations. Jesus' mission was, our mission, to bless all people and all nations. Well, the world's a very different place to what it was even 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. We've had the incredible story of the church, but... Often, world mission can seem a bit old-fashioned to us, can't it? Two years ago, I was in Romania and um, listening to a group of people from Moldova who were spending as much money as they could, actually not training themselves, training people from Central Asia. It's got one of the major colleges now for people from Central Asia. In Moldova, one of the poorest countries in Eastern Europe. training them so that they can share faith back in Central Asia, a church committed to mission. We as a church can learn so much. We've just had a short-term team from our church. I go to a very similar church uh, in Warwick and Leamington in in Central England uh, to to Windsor here. We just had a small team go to uh, Pokhara in Nepal, and they have come back not because of what they were able to do in that church. They've come back blown away by that church's ambition. Um, The vision of that church, they were the same size as we were 15 years ago. We're 300 like you. They're now 1,000 with 10 church plants. And you're sitting there thinking, I'm trying to teach them mission? Wow, we have so much to learn. Let's pick out one people, the Mizo people, a small state in northeast India. Um, 
There are only about a million, a million and a half of them as a whole population group. Um, the Welsh revival in the 1900s sent lots of missionaries to Mizoram, and large numbers of people there became Christians as a result. Then now, the church with maybe one of the highest proportion of church attendances uh, across the world. But they're also the highest proportion of mission senders. They have over 200, sorry, 2,000 mission workers. 2,000. Most of them working in other states of India. But they've even got three missionaries in South Wales. Let's catch to some of the heartbeat. His story from Iran. I was waiting for my dad to come home because before he left home, he told me, uh, make a tea, prepare tea for me, and I'll come back. And, but he never come back. I couldn't believe, I didn't know what to do. I was thinking I couldn't uh, live anymore and continue my life without my father. Evangelist, and always I remember that uh, he teach people about the gospel, and it was his joy to see people come to Christ. And this is what was in my mind about his ministry, and so I decided to uh, follow him. I started to learn how to evangelize to people, but. Uh, the problem was uh, we didn't have much material, especially we didn't have much, uh, we didn't have gospel, we didn't have Bible to give to people. So we uh, decided to write scriptures on the paper and leave it in the taxi, in shops, in um, doctor visit rooms. It was very good to give out verses, but I felt we need something more, something more to give to people and they can read. So I decided to write uh, Gospels. I chose uh, the Gospel of John. I decided to write one chapter a night after a whole my family was sleeping. I had a small table, so I used that, that table and I took one uh, small uh, notebook. I, I remember when I finished it, I was so excited and I went out and I bought a wrapping paper and I wrapped that notebook because uh, I wanted to make it very exciting, very nice so people uh, to, to take the people attention. Uh, I remember I had, uh, I had an exam on that day and when I came back from my exam I was praying that God, where do you want me to put this notebook? This is the final day, so uh, and I was I, I was past 
uh, I was passing a street called Rahnamai, and I felt peace that I can uh, left that notebook here. So I left it near one house. So as I left it, I pray that God lead the right person to this gospel. I was hoping to uh, have a more gospel to give out to all the people in Mashhad, to every single people in Mashhad. And it was my joy and my desire. And I prayed to God that God send us Bibles and we can hand out to people. When I came to Elam for more training, I saw a team, they were translating a New Testament, a New Testament that we had desire to have and give it to people. And then I heard they printed 10,000 and then 20,000 and 1 million. And what a joy I had. And I prayed that God, we need those Bibles, we need those New Testament for our people in Mashhad, in Iran. Why is the Iranian church growing? Passion like that. Ambition like that. Would you have spent, you had no scripture, it was illegal, your father has been killed, and you spend by candlelight writing the scripture just to leave on a doorstep? Madness. But what incredible madness that we can learn from. We have something to learn here from the Iranian church. The global church has grown incredibly the last hundred years, but still so many have not heard. How will they hear? We have so many opportunities in our world today, a world we can travel, other nationalities on our doorstep. Just think how Belfast has changed in the last 15, 20 years. What an opportunity that gives us. No longer do we have to go overseas and make disciples. We need to do that still. I hope that many will still go from here. But we can go and make disciples with people on the backgrounds just among our neighbors. There's so many people groups in the world, particularly in the Muslim world, particularly the middle class in India, particularly countries like Japan, delighted to know you've got a couple working in Japan, one of the hardest nations on earth. 85% of Muslims have never, ever had a chance to hear the gospel or even met a Christian. And you can do it I was on a trip in Sudan in 1986, and the first question you get asked is, why are you here? Oh, you're a Christian. Tell me. The incredible opportunities we have. And a world, too, in incredible need. We prayed a bit earlier for the Rohingya people. I worked with refugees for 25 years from Iraq, from Syria. from Cambodia, 
from Mozambique. And the world has so many refugees today, so many poor people. The list could go on. People falsely imprisoned, persecuted for their particular identity. So, my final challenge, how is God using you as a church, but you as a family and you as an individual to bless the nations of the world? What's your life like? It's important to go, more important that when you do, you make disciples. But a missionary is not someone who crosses the sea, but someone who sees the cross. Is our purpose, our one ambition, to see the people of the world blessed? Have we got a mission statement like Jesus? To bring good news to the poor, to help release captives, to bring recovery of sight to the blind, to help the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I trust it will be totally embedded in your DNA here as a church. I'm sure it is to see missions so central to you here in this town, in this city, here in your nation, here in the wider island of Ireland, here across Europe, here across the world, to see people experience God's love. How's God challenging you? Like Razor, what's your ambition, your desire? Because the end game is good news. The nations are glad. And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, and no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing, can't read it, I haven't got it down here, white robes, and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, and we can say this together, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. What a great multitude, and it's our privilege to be part of seeing that multitude come to faith in Christ.